You know, every great move of God has begun with young people. When you look at the disciples, most of them were probably teenagers uh, when they were called by Christ. It's the youth and the energy and the zeal of young people that can make a difference in a move of God because uh, there's an idealism that hasn't been quenched by the jadedness of our getting older. When you look at this history of revival and awakening, most of the leaders of those revivals and awakening were young, teenagers, college-age students, young adults. As Alvin Reed has said, and I've said often in recent years in quoting him, most of us are too old to start a revival, but we're not too old to kill one. If we don't let God do what he wants to do and use who he wants to use, we could miss a great move of God. I didn't have the money or the time uh, to go to Explo 72, but I had a friend of mine who, who went. His name is Keith Moore. He's the pastor of the Dogwood Church uh, up in the, the Atlanta area. He is married to Allison. Allison and Terry are cousins, and so we've known Keith and Allison really all their lives, and they are dear friends of ours. He does a great work for God, but Keith went to Explo 72, and so I sent him an email a few weeks ago, and I said, Keith, I need you to share your Explo 72 story with me, and this is what he wrote. I hardly know where to begin. The effects of the Jesus movement had already reached Bremen, Georgia in the summer of 1970. I was not aware of what was happening across the nation. I was, as Dr. Jerry Vines describes, at that time so green that I know, not only did I not know anything, I didn't even suspect much. June of 1970, I had just graduated from high school and for the first time began questioning the meaning of my life. I didn't have many answers either. My high school friend, Jeff Thompson, had returned home from his freshman year at Auburn University, and he came to visit me and told me of coming to faith in Christ through the ministry of the Navigators that year. We both had grown up at First Baptist Church Bremen and had made some kind of profession of faith as children. But he questioned my faith and challenged me to examine Christ seriously for the first time. So I began attending a home Bible study that Jeff led for college students home for the summer. The longtime pastor of First Baptist Church, Bremen, Dr. Bill Clinton, not that Bill Clinton, the other <laughs> Bill Clinton, uh, put together a community-wide crusade for the second week of August to be held at the high school stadium. Evangelist Mike Gilchrist, those of you who do not know who Mike Gilchrist is, he was the uncle of uh, Jonathan Beasley, who was on our staff in the early 90s. Uh, evangelist Mike Gilchrist was the preacher for a Sunday through Sunday campaign. Revival broke out. Honestly, I don't know if I got saved or made a significant recommitment of my life to Christ on Thursday night, August the 9th at that meeting. But over 200 adults made professions of faith in Bremen during those days, and it spread to every church. The high school and college group of our church took off. A huge youth choir developed. We sang every Sunday night and did evangelism training and witnessing all over town. Lay witness mission teams developed at the local First Methodist Church, and they invited me and others to join in with them. 
Allison and I traveled several weekends a year for about three years to share our testimony and to lead youth groups all across the Southeast. So fast forward two years to the spring of 1972. Alan Posey, now the pastor of the Cross Point Baptist Church in Oxford, Georgia, and I were sophomores at West Georgia College. He received a brochure from Campus Crusade about Explo 72, and we decided to go. It was big for us. 80,000 high school and college students and military young adults invaded the Dallas-Fort Worth area for nine days. We met in the Cotton Bowl every night for huge rallies and worship services. As you know, Billy Graham and Bill Bright alternated preaching at night, and we were challenged to fulfill the Great Commission in our lifetime. The candlelight commitment service the last night was the highlight for me. I was a part of a small group of about 800 students that met in the mornings at the sanctuary of the big Methodist church across the street from SMU. We experienced a classic basic training that Campus Crusade is best at, confirmed our salvation, trained us to share our salvation testimonies, trained us how to use the four spiritual laws, trained us in the blue booklet, as they called it, which was how to be filled with the Holy Spirit, which was a breakthrough training for me. I stayed with a Catholic couple that were older that lived in the Highland Park area and shared the gospel with their prodigal 20-something son while there. We ended the entire nine days with the Jesus Music Festival of what has become Stedman's Freeway in Dallas. I was there with between 150,000 and 200,000 of my closest friends. I'm still running on the spiritual gas of that time. I would agree with that. I'm still running on the spiritual gas of the Jesus movement. I don't have to be propped up, motivated, encouraged, pushed, prodded, begged, coaxed to get excited about what the Lord can do among young people and in a church because I've seen it. And I know that there's a plan of action and that plan of action is found in the book of Acts. Nothing has changed significantly in 2,000 years. There's no new truth. There's no new plan. It's just the church has got to act on the plan that's already there. And so when, when Billy Graham opened the uh, Explo event, there were 100 countries represented. So when they said that they wanted to reach the world with the Great Commission in our lifetime, they meant it because 100 countries around the world were represented at that event. Billy Graham on that night laid out the purposes of Explo. Now as I go through these, you're not going to have time to write them down. You're going to see them. But as I go through these, you can lay these purposes right alongside Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2. So let me share them with you. Number one, to dramatize the Jesus revolution. Number two, to teach youth how to witness for Christ. Number three, to remind the church that the old-time gospel is relevant to this modern generation. Number four, to teach young Christians that true faith must be applied to the social problems of the world. Number five, to enlist thousands of new recruits for missionary societies, seminaries, and Bible schools. Number six, to assist the church in evangelism. Number seven, to evangelize the world in our generation. And number eight, to say to the whole world that Christian youth are on the march. 
In his message on the final day, Billy Graham said this, I believe that there is more potential power to change the world gathered here on this mall than I have ever seen in one place at one time. You are young. You are fearless. The future is yours. You are filled with hope in a world of despair. But if we are going to revolutionize the world, we must have the same message, the same discipline, the same dedication, the same consecration, and the same willingness to die that those early apostles had. What Jesus called those first disciples to, he calls us to. He calls every generation to these same things. And every generation needs to act on what he said. Look at Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. Acts 1 and verse 8. We know it. The problem is we know it more than we do it. But you will receive a program when the convention prints a brochure where you can buy it in the local Christian bookstore. Is that what he said? What will you get? I'm sorry, what will you get? You will get receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall sit in Sunday school classes and talk about Jesus but never tell anybody else about him for the rest of your lives. Does your Bible say that? You shall be my witnesses. There's no opt-out clause there. You shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, even to the remotest part of the earth. The book of Acts is a book of action. And it is a book of action with a power that is available to make that action possible. Really, the book of Acts is not really the acts of the apostles. It's the acts of God. Or maybe even better said, the acts of the Holy Spirit through available people who obeyed what God told them to do. That's a long title, but it expresses what the book of Acts is about. It is the continuing work of Jesus through his church after he had ascended into heaven. After he had died on the cross, ascended into heaven, he said, Now I'm going, you're going to stay, but here's what you're going to do while you're here. And that message and that command has not changed in all the years since Jesus left this earth. We have been given a power that has been poured out on the church and on believers that makes us available and viable witnesses of the gospel of Jesus Christ in the most corrupt and depraved of situations and circumstances. Ray Steadman said, Acts is an unfinished book. The story is still being written today, even now. Now, we know that you don't build doctrine on Acts, but you do build a lot of your methodology on Acts. How we go and how we do what we do comes out of the book of Acts. It's an inerrant word, but I would submit to you that Acts is an open book. Not that we add to it by saying, well, I think there's a new revelation, but there are stories and testimonies through the generations, through centuries, and through churches of the continuing work of the Holy Spirit across every line and every culture into every home and every man and every woman and every boy and girl. God has given us what we need to carry out and continue what he started in Acts chapter 1. 
Now, only God knows if we're on the verge of the last chapter, which is when he comes back and takes his church. But here is the strategy of Jesus for every generation. If you want to know what God's plan is for your life, forget worrying about what your vocation is. Forget worrying about what city you're going to live in. Forget worrying about how much money you're going to make. Forget worrying about your retirement. If you want to know God's plan for your life, this is it. And nobody who calls themselves a Christian can get out of this. Or we're living in disobedience. Number one, wait for the Spirit. We are to wait for the Spirit. The Spirit comes at the moment that we get saved. The Spirit of God comes to live inside of us. We are to wait. We're not to go act in our will and on our agenda, but on the Spirit's will and on the Spirit's agenda. Secondly, witness to people. Witness to people. Thirdly, watch for His coming. So, wait for the Spirit, witness to people, and watch for His coming. Now, Let's just look at that for a minute. Waiting unites us. As we are together, gathered together corporately, we are waiting and it unites us that we are together for a reason. We are together for a purpose. God has a plan for our lives and it's a unifying plan. It brings unity. Witnessing stretches us because it gets us out of our comfort zone. Now, we're not afraid to go pay you know, 60 bucks for a shirt and a hat to witness to our favorite school. But when somebody says, here's a track, leave it for a waitress, you go, well, you know, I, you know, she might not like it. It's amazing that we have to be stretched to be witnesses, but it does stretch us because it gets us out of our comfort zone. And then watching motivates us. It motivates us because we are waiting and witnessing, knowing that we are watching for the soon coming of Jesus Christ, that one day he's going to return, and our days of witnessing are going to be over. Jesus said, don't leave. The Greek word could be modernized to say, stick to it as if you're glued there until the Spirit comes. Don't leave. Don't move. Wait for power or you won't have what you need to witness. You see, the failure to fulfill the Great Commission is not a spiritual problem. It's an obedience problem. The church has failed to wait and to walk and to witness in the power of Christ. He did not say wait for a program. He said wait for power. Resurrection power is irresistible and unstoppable. Every obstacle thrown in its path only advances the gospel even further. If you don't believe that, the fastest growing places in the church today in the world are in the persecuted church, not in America where we have freedom of speech and freedom of worship. We are failing at the fulfilling of the Great Commission while people are dying to tell that story to their friends and neighbors, even at the risk of their own lives. You will be my witnesses, not my salesperson, not my promoter, you'll be my witnesses. The very title suggests that we're moving. Now here, the, the disciples were to wait, and they waited in an upper room in Jerusalem. But when the power came, they went. They waited, and then they went. Now, they did not go to the hills of Palestine and sit around and sing Kumbaya all day long. They didn't sit around and meditate on things, nor did they get into classrooms and study systematic theology. 
nor do they write blogs about what they believed about Calvinism or Arminianism or end times theology or the gifts of the Spirit. They did what Jesus told them to do. They went and witnessed. Here's the problem with the American church, fat and happy, overfed, overstuffed, and we have not been out doing what we're doing, supposed to be doing in exercising out our faith. We would rather sit in a two-hour study and debate the doctrines of salvation than tell anybody how to be saved. And if your plan and your desire and your thought is that what I want to do is spend time studying the plan of salvation and the doctrines of salvation, but you never tell anybody, I would say to you, you're just an educated idiot. Because you know what you're not doing. And quit worrying about, well, you know, somebody said, well, I, what if they're not elect? Well, let God figure that out. You're not smart enough to figure it out. The smartest person in this room multiplied by 20 can't figure it out. The mysteries of God, can, if the mysteries of God could be figured out, we all could figure them out. Just do it. Just witness. Just tell somebody. Well, I hadn't got it all figured out. You think Simon Peter had it all figured out on the day of Pentecost? This is what he knew. This Jesus whom you crucified, God has raised him from the dead. Repent and be saved and be baptized. He, listen, he, he had 10 minutes worth of information and 3,000 people got saved. You multiply this room by how many times we've been in a Sunday school class and a women's Bible study and a men's retreat and everything else, and you multiply all that out and let's see how much, what our results are. It takes almost 100 members of a Southern Baptist church to win one person to Christ. Something is wrong with our system. These disciples sent out to witness. They were commanded to. It wasn't optional. And Jesus said, when the Spirit comes, he's going to enable you, empower you. He's going to enlighten you. Now, here's what you need to understand. We don't witness because we are saved. We are saved to be witnesses. It's not, oh, I'm saved, so I'm supposed to witness. No, I'm saved to be a witness. That's who, that's who my... I'm supposed to be. That's my DNA. Without the power, we have nothing. But with his power, we can talk to anybody. His power places us on mission. If I'm walking in the power of the Holy Spirit, it places me on mission. Now, Jesus said, start in Jerusalem and go to the uttermost parts of the earth. By the time the Gospels had been written and the Epistles had been written. The Gospel had been taken to the known world. When you look at the story of where the disciples ended up and what tradition tells us about where they died, they had gone down into Africa, they had gone up into India, they had gone all the way to Spain with the Gospel of Jesus Christ. They had taken it throughout the Roman Empire. Guess what it means for us? It means it begins in Albany, Georgia, and it goes out to Leesburg, and it goes to Smithville, and Dawson, and Tifton, and Camilla, and Sylvester. It goes to all the places around here, and then goes to the uttermost parts of the earth. Guess what? We saw a little bit of that last week with Pastor Simon. Now, did that excite any of you? You know, I mean, you, you just go out, man, I'm a part of a church, and 
And because we gave, we planted 300 churches in, in Africa and in India and in Nepal, and there have been 207,000 people saved in the last five years. Hey, tell me about your neighbor. Hey, we're in India and Nepal and we're in Africa. Hey, tell me about your brother that's lost. Hey, we're in India and Africa. Did you know we got a church plant in San Francisco? You know, those people out there are crazy. Well, tell me about your neighbor. Well, you know, we're in India and Africa and Nepal. It begins here. We don't start out there and work our way back. Jerusalem has to be strong for the ends of the earth to be reached. And we have to model it here. By giving, by going, by serving, by sharing, we model here what we want the world to know. And the world begins at the corner of Whispering Pines. When you get off of this property, this is where our world begins. This is when the church disperses and we go out and do what God has called us to do. Every generation needs to see with the eyes of Jesus. Look at Jesus. He was moved with compassion. Look at the people that he cared about. And look at the barriers that he broke down. Now, when I, when I went to college and seminary, they told me what kind of church that I could pastor. I could pastor a church of people that were similar to me, which is really frightening on every level imaginable. In a socioeconomic range, of, if you had a 1 to 10, a socioeconomic range of about 3, a gap, because poor people don't want to be with rich people, and rich people don't want to be with poor people, and white people don't want to be with black people, and black people don't want to be with white people, and Hispanics don't want to be with blacks, and, and Indians don't want to be with this. And that, literally, I was taught that's the kind of church you build. There's not one stinking word in the New Testament that will verify that philosophy of building a church. Not one. And all that was, was carnal people teaching how you build a carnal church that only cares about people that look like them. And Jesus did not leave us that option. When he brought in Simon the Zealot, he broke political barriers. That means I don't care if you're Democrat or Republican. I really don't. I don't care who you voted for. I really don't. What I want to know is, who have you talked to about Jesus lately? When he ate with Zacchaeus, he ignored class barriers. Rich, poor. When he talked to the woman at the well, he eliminated social barriers. When he helped the Roman centurion, he bypassed racial and national barriers. When he praised the woman who gave the widow's might, he ignored economic barriers. And when he washed the feet of his disciples, he broke all the master-servant barriers and rules. Now, how in the world do we do it? How arrogant of them in 1972 to say, we want to reach the world with the gospel in our generation. That seems impossible. It is more possible today than it was in 1972. In 1972, you didn't have a cell phone that somebody could see what you just sent anywhere in the world. Which is, if you read my Sherwood Life article this week, nobody's really interested in what recipe you use this week. Isn't it going to be sad if we stand before Jesus and we posted pictures of every little event we went to and every recipe we cooked and the one question Jesus said, I read your Facebook page. Where is your witness that you loved me with your whole heart? 
I saw your Instagram posts. Where are the pictures of you fellowshipping with believers? I saw all your social media. Where's the evidence that anybody that just casually ran across your name knew that you were an unapologetic follower of Jesus Christ? So, they built that out of Dawson Trotman's book, Born to Reproduce, which is about a 30-page booklet. Dawson Trotman, who was the founder of the Navigators, gave a simple strategy for winning the world in one generation. This is it. If a Christian wins one lost person to Christ, then disciples that person for six months, then wins another one, and that chain continues... The world could be won in less than 20 years. At the end of six months, two Christians are now four. At the end of one year, four are now eight. But this conversion maturing cycle in seven years equals 33,000 new believers. But in 10 years, two billion converts. Now let me tell you what that means. Let's say there are 500 families in this church. That means... If one person in every family in this church led one person to Christ every six months, that's not too much to ask. One person led one person to Christ every six months. And so I'll do what I did with Stephen. So, so I go out and I meet Stephen Durbin, and he's at Dunkin' Donuts or somewhere. I don't know where you are. Probably are. And I start talking to Stephen, and Stephen realizes that he needs Christ, and I win Stephen to Christ. And I disciple him for six months. I tell him how to read his Bible, how to pray, how to witness. I take him with me to show him how to share faith with somebody. And I say, at six months, okay, so we're at June. So I led Stephen to Christ in January. So we're at June, and I say, Stephen, you're ready. Now I'm going to go find somebody else. And so Stephen goes, and he finds Ray. And he starts telling Ray, and Ray says, you know what? I need Jesus in my life. And I go and I find Ken. And I start telling Ken, and I invest in Ken. Well, at the end of the year, there's only four of us. But if you follow this principle, in seven years, there's 33,000 new believers. By the way, there are more lost people than that in Albany, Georgia alone. It is not an impossible task. It is simply a matter of Will we obey God? Will we do what God has told us to do? Will we follow the Great Commission? And according to one study, this is what rattled my cage when I looked at this a few weeks ago. According to one study, there are 13 million people in North America who say they do not know one person who is a Christian. Now, this is the land of the free and the home of the brave, where God bless America, and we're one nation under God, indivisible. Thirteen million cannot say that they know anybody who claims to be a Christian. Sixty-five percent of Buddhists in America say they don't know a Christian. Seventy-eight percent of Hindus say they don't know a Christian. Forty-three percent of Muslims say they don't know a Christian. We have the power to change those numbers the question is do we have the passion to do it do we have the passion to do it does the great commission ever cross our mind when jesus said as the father sent me so send i you did we think he was talking to us or was he talking to somebody else you see nothing grows faster than its energy supply 
That could be true with oil or gas or coal, but it's also true with the church. Nothing grows faster than its energy supply. And the reason that 1,000 churches will close their doors this year in America, minimum, is because they're not hooked into the power supply. But that's not the way the church at Acts reacted. They went to Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, the ends of the earth. In Acts chapter 8, the gospel was preached to the Samaritans. In Acts 11, the first time the gospel was preached to the Greeks. In Acts 13, the first missionaries were sent out. And by Acts 16, the gospel had gone to Europe. When they saw a lost world, they went out and did something about it. Well, we're writing our chapter in the book of Acts. We've been writing it for 60 years as a church. I wonder how it's reading in heaven. I wonder as our chapter has been written, if we've experienced enough of the power of the Holy Spirit, enough of revival that as the nail-scarred hands read the letter that we are writing, the chapter that we are writing about what we are doing individually and collectively to reach the world with the gospel. I wonder if those nail-scarred hands are pleased. Are we doing the business that God left us here to do? If revival comes, here's what happens. Revival always leads to evangelism. And evangelism always leads to awakening. We look at the problems of the world. We look at sex trafficking and child abuse and divorce and manipulation and terrorism and all those things. Every social program that has been started in the last 300 years has been started as an outgrowth of revival and awakening. And it has impacted millions of people for the cause of Christ. But it starts with a church and a people that are hot for God and are on fire for God and are witnessing unapologetically about the life-changing power of Jesus Christ. Let me ask you something. I'm very excited about what we're doing in India and Nepal and in Africa. But I'm concerned that Albany is dying and going to hell. If we have revival, the baptistry waters will be continually stirred every time we gather to worship. And it won't be two, it'll be five, it'll be 10, it'll be 15, it'll be 20, it'll be 30. In the revival in Bremen in 1970, 200 adults saved in a town of 5,000 people in one week. That can happen. Let's see what it looks like. Watch this video. Revival. Now, Webster's Dictionary will tell you it means restoration to life, consciousness, vigor, strength. Awakening, the act of waking from sleep, or a recognition, realization, or coming into awareness of something. Revival, awakening. Northampton, Massachusetts, 1730s. Jonathan Edwards begins to preach, followed by George Whitfield. Whitfield spoke to thousands in the open air about the concept of spiritual rebirth, while Edwards warned of sinners in the hands of an angry God. 
revival swept the colonies. Countless lives began to change. Churches began to change. And history remembers this as the first great awakening. September 23rd, 1857, at lunchtime in New York City, a layman named Jeremy Lanfear kneels to pray. America was in spiritual, political, and economic decline. There was financial panic and rumors of a civil war, and so Lanfear invited thousands to a rented hall on Fulton Street to pray. Six people showed up, just six people. But those six people began to pray. Three weeks later, 40 people were praying. Within six months, 10,000 people were gathered daily for prayer. Over the next two years, over one million Americans out of a total population of 30 million put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. This became known as the Great Prayer Revival. In the early 1970s, the cover of Life magazine featured over 80,000 young people gathering for Jesus at an event in Dallas called Explo 72. A year before, the cover of Time magazine read the Jesus Revolution. Because something undeniable was happening. Something unexplainable was happening. Something was sweeping young people all over America. It became known as the Jesus Movement and accounted for more baptisms in a single year than any other year in the history of the Southern Baptists. 400,000 people were baptized in one year. The First Great Awakening, the Great Prayer Revival, the Jesus Movement. What's the link? What is the common denominator? What is the first step? How do things like this happen? It's prayer. The first step is always prayer. History is clear. The record is undeniable. The blueprint is right in front of us. Every great move of God begins when His people pray. Not ordinary prayer, extraordinary prayer. Unified prayer, desperate prayer. And so it's time. It's time to pray. It's time to pray in repentance. It's time to pray for reconciliation. It's time to pray for personal renewal in our own lives. It's time to beg God for spiritual awakening in our time and in our generation, right now. God can do more in a moment than we can ever do in a lifetime when His people pray. It's time to pray. There's enough power here to go out and change the world. And we pray that this will be the beginning of a spiritual awakening that will sweep the world. For we ask it in the name of Jesus Christ, our blessed Lord. This is the invitation this morning. I want to ask you, very simply, if you want God to pour out that kind of power on your life and on this church, so that we can reach our community to the ends of the earth with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want to ask you just to join me at the altar this morning. We just make your way here, get as close as you can. If your desire, your hope, and your longing is that God would use us for one more move of the Holy Spirit of God in our land and across this world so that Christ could be exalted and magnified, so that lives would be changed, that people would be saved that he would use us in southwest Georgia to make a difference for the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we would be his witnesses without apology, 
without any hesitation or reservation that we would be his hands and his feet in this community, in this world, to tell the world about the power of Jesus Christ. Would you just step out, just get as close as you can, and Mark's going to sing and the praise team's going to sing. This is the answer. The answer is Jesus, and we need him today. Jesus is the answer for the world today. Jesus, you are the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father but by you. God, would you ignite in our hearts a brokenness for a lost world. Lord, we see the news of bombings at concerts and terror attacks and Coptic Christians being killed in Egypt and it just kind of blows by us. It, we stop for 60 seconds and we think about it. And then we move on to our entertainment. God, would you send power on this place and on our lives in such a way that the power would flow out of us and through us onto this community that is lost and in darkness, that is hopeless, doesn't know where they're going, doesn't know why they're going there. They just are confused, and they're blinded by the enemy. Lord, I pray that you would take the blinders off, that you would give us the opportunity individually to have gospel conversations with people at work and in restaurants and in schools and at camps and on vacations. That, Father, we would look for the moments and the opportunities to share the gospel and to reach the nations in our generation. Lord, may we see hundreds of people come to Christ in the coming months and years. May we see an influx of people that they don't have a Bible. They may not even have a Gideon Bible. They don't know anything. But what they know is they're lost and they're desperate. And they don't have any answers. Lord, we know that Jesus is the answer. And so we wait and we witness and we watch. We wait for you, but the waiting days are over. The Spirit is here, and he is on us and in us. We witness not based on our personality or our gifts of communication, but on the fact that we have changed lives. We are different people because Jesus saved us. Every one of us has a gospel story that knows Jesus. And Lord, I pray for people in this room that may not know Jesus. They may know religion. 
but they may not know Jesus, I pray that today would be the day of salvation for them. That before they walk out of this building, that they will find someone and ask them how they can be saved. That they'll pray and ask you to come into their heart and forgive their sins. And they'll make a public profession of that faith soon. Lord, would you rain down on us, just fall down on us in such a way that we cannot be silent about what we have seen and what we have heard. Would revival in this church, Father, break open the doors of evangelism in our community and awakening in our region where we can roll back the darkness that so encroaches every home and every neighborhood, every family and every individual. Would you allow us by the power of your Holy Spirit to roll the darkness back and to show the light of the love of Jesus Christ? For it's in his name we pray. And the people of God said, 